Let's read just the first nine verses. Is the mic on? Yes, it is. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak, and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. In verses 16 and 17, You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Let's pray. Father, like we do every week, we invite your spirit to come to this place right now. We are open to your Holy Spirit. We want your spirit with us to teach us. Lord, free me this morning from any sort of pressures, any sort of performance type of things. Lord, this is not what that's about. Lord, speak to me. Speak to all of us this morning as we look at your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Being that it's Valentine's Day, I thought it appropriate to look at a three-letter word we don't talk often about in church. Three-letter word that starts with S. No, it's not what you think. Everybody's looking in their program. Hey, this is going to be okay. What are we talking about? <laughs> Three-letter three word I'm talking about this morning that you don't hear much in church anymore is the little word sin. Hate to disappoint you. Sin. It seems so old-fashioned. It seems like, oh, I don't know. We just don't talk about sin anymore. Lovely Valentine's Day topic, I know, but I'm on the rotation and, you know, that's what I got. So, here we go. Sin, it's an archery term, really. It's when an archer would shoot an arrow and he'd miss the target. That would be a sin. It's used to describe us as people when we miss the mark, when we miss the target of living in in perfect obedience to God. That's a sin. The Bible uses other words to talk about sin. It uses the word iniquity. Iniquity is when we take something that God has created, something that is good, and we pervert that. Love is a good thing. But sometimes in our culture, love, a giving thing, is turned into a taking thing. That's perverting it. That would be iniquity. Sin can be described as a transgression. That's where God has set up a boundary. Thou shalt not. And we say, oh yes, I shall. We go across the boundary. That's a transgression. That's a trespass. For that, there is a penalty. In the case of sin, that penalty is death or eternal separation from God. At Woodland Hills Church, we want to be open and honest about talking about a lot of things. And I want to say right up front that there are people here this morning that have had false guilt and false shame heaped upon them their whole life. And we want to be here to deal with that. Jesus Christ is the answer, the healing. He will show you the truth in those areas. But I think we're going to miss the mark 
if we don't also talk openly and honestly about this thing called sin. Because with sin, there is real guilt that we need to deal with. And again, the answer is Jesus Christ. But how we deal with our sin is, is going to be very, very important. If we deal with it in an appropriate way, then it leads to grace and healing and cleansing. But if we stuff it inside, if we don't deal with it, it can be disastrous. It can just squeeze the joy and the life out of our relationship with God. So I want to look at that this morning, and I want to use the life of one of God's greatest heroes, David, to look at, at, at sin and, and the effects that sin can have on our lives. Over in 1 Samuel, or 2 Samuel 11, you read about King David. He was a man of God. He was a man after God's own heart. But he was also a man like so many spiritual leaders today that fell prey to sexual sin. It seems that, that he had just got done with a battle with the Syrians. He had been victorious. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And uh, yet, um, he was depressed and let down after the, after the battle. And so he sends his men out to fight. And he stays at home. It was a spring evening. He was all by himself. The servants had gone home. He was walking around the terrace of his palace. He looked out over his kingdom. And that's when it happened. There down below on the other side of a wall was a woman taking a bath. Naked. That custom hasn't changed, by the way. Just a little fact. People even today are taking baths. They're still naked. It's just a little fun fact for you. But the woman was uh, a very beautiful woman. Her name was Bathsheba. Where we get the word bath? No. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> she was a very beautiful woman, but she was also very married to one of David's warriors, Uriah. David didn't care. He just sent a messenger over. He had Bathsheba come in. They had a little chit-chat, a little candlelight dinner. One thing led to another. And they slept together for the evening. Well, David's thinking, this is perfect. Uriah's on the battlefield. He'll never know anything about it. In the morning, Bathsheba went home. Perfect plan. Except it got complicated. Because, as we say in the biblical sense, Bathsheba was with child. Can you imagine what's going through the king of Israel's mind? He has just gotten one of his warrior's wives pregnant. And this is not good. Immediately, he does what I think we normally do. He tries to cover it up. He tries to hide it. So he brings Uriah in from the battlefield. He says, Dad, take some time with your wife, a little rest, a little relaxation. It'll be great for you. Hoping that people will just assume then that the baby is Uriah's. But Uriah is too good a soldier. He says, well, how could I go home? How could I enjoy the comfort of home when all my buddies are out on the front lines? So he lays a mat in front of his front door and that's where he sleeps. He never sees his wife. Well, David moves on to step two, plan B. If he won't do it sober, maybe he'll do it when he's drunk. So he takes Uriah out and he gets him drunk. But Uriah still won't go in, still won't be with his wife. And David is getting worried. He's caught in a downward spiral. He's caught in a, in a situation where he doesn't see any way out. And so in desperation, this is what he does. He has his leaders put Uriah in the thick of the battle, thinking, hoping that he will be killed. And he is. So here's the deal. David is caught in sexual sin, and to cover his tracks, he more or less commits murder. 
This is great stuff. I mean, if Current Affair were around, they would have been knocking on his palace door saying, hey, we've got a story here. For a whole year, David doesn't say anything about this. He doesn't make any confessions publicly. He doesn't tell anything to God. And you have to wonder, how in the world can you deal with this kind of guilt in your life for a whole year and not say anything? Maybe he tried some of the ways that we sometimes try today. Maybe he tried to minimize his sin. Maybe he looked at it and said, oh, you know, when you think about it, murder's not that big a deal. You know, I mean, you know, what's, what's the problem? Maybe he tried to rationalize his sin away. Well, you know, Uriah was a warrior. It was inevitable that he was going to get killed in battle anyway. So it's not really my fault that it happened. Not my sin. He may have also tried to transfer. Transfer. Blame somebody else for his sin. You know, if Bathsheba hadn't been naked taking that bath, I wouldn't have been tempted. She should have kept her clothes on and then, it's not my fault, it's her fault that I got into this sin. He may have tried to do a lot of extra religious stuff. You know, the extra trips to the temple, more burnt offerings, more sacrifices, work and work. Maybe that would make God happy. Maybe that would deal with his guilt. That would take it away. Maybe he tried to compartmentalize his sin. That's the highest form of denial. That's when we take our sinful actions, our sinful acts, and we put them in a little box. And we just shove them deep down inside ourselves. And we go on living our life like nothing's the problem, but that little box is still there. Maybe he tried to shove it down in the darkness and cover it up and cover over it and hope that it would take care of itself, that time would heal that wound. But it didn't. All of his coping mechanisms were proving to be woefully inadequate in dealing with this real issue of sin in his life. And if you look at his writings, you can see that inside he was just dying. Outside he looked pretty good. He looked pretty proud. He looked like, I got my act together. But inside he was just crumbling. What happens next to David after that year of silence really was a key in his restoration process in getting him going, moving towards forgiveness. God sent his prophet Nathan to confront David. The prophet told him a little story. He said, David, imagine that there are two men in a town. One is very, very rich. The other is very, very poor. The very, very rich man has sheep and cattle that line thousands of hillsides. As far as you look, you can see those animals. But that poor man... That poor man just has one tiny little ewe lamb. He's purchased with his last few pennies. He loves that lamb like a child. Feeds him table, feeds her table scraps and lets her drink from his cup. And sometimes that little lamb falls asleep in his arms. He loves that little lamb like a daughter. Now David, a traveler, comes to town, said Nathan, and, and the rich man wanted to feed him something for dinner. But he ignores all of his sheep, all of his cattle. And he goes and he takes that little ewe lamb from that poor man and he kills it, he slaughters it, and that's what they have for dinner. When David heard this, he just burned with anger and he said, As surely as the Lord lives, that man should die. How could someone be so cruel, so insensitive, so callous? And Nathan looked at David and said, David, you are that man. God anointed you king over Israel and Judah. God gave you every need that you had. If you, whatever you wanted, you could have had. 
Yet you despised the word of the Lord by doing what was evil in His eyes. You killed Uriah. You took his wife to be your own. I have to stop for a second and say, Nathan, Nathan, Nathan. Don't you understand you're going about this all wrong? Don't be confrontive here. You know, build a relationship. Look for the opening. Maybe share something with David. You know, I mean, this is pretty rough on the guy. You've got to wonder what's happening here. I think what's happening is we have a beautiful picture of God's truth confronting our darkness and our hiddenness. And I believe that Nathan was empowered by God's Holy Spirit to be a beacon of light in David's life. And what Nathan is doing, the words of Nathan are like a light that are going into the very soul of David. And everything that David has tried to stuff and hide and repress, the light of God is lighting up now. And it seems like a bad thing, but it's a good thing. Because when David finally sees the immensity of his sin, when he finally sees that all of his efforts to try to deal with the guilt have been futile, that in and of himself he can't do anything to take away the guilt of his sin, then his only response is to put his hope in God. And so David turns and he falls at the feet of God and he says, Have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. That turning, that change of heart about his sin, that change of heart about how he was going to deal with his sin, is what we call repentance. Turning from your sin and turning to your only hope which is God. That Nathan experience, that moment of truth in our lives, is where we all start as well in dealing with the sin that we have. To be able to say to God, here I am, I want your light to illuminate my darkness. Show me my weak areas, show me my sin areas, I want to deal with them. The psalmist said in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, I want your truth to shine in my life. Show me what I'm missing. Illuminate my life. And I think it's really important as we do our spiritual inventory that we include the Lord. Because when we do it on our own, sometimes we're too light on ourselves. You say, hey, I'm as good as that person over there. I'm really not too bad. But I think a lot of times we're too hard on ourselves. Oh, I'm bad. I can't do anything right. Oh, I'm disgusting. I'm a worm. I'm a wretch. I, oh. But with God's truth, He comes in and He shows us the truth that we are a prized possession. We are His treasure. But we also see the sin that we need to deal with. It's important to include the Holy Spirit in this spiritual search in our lives. Well, Psalm 51 is really where we see David's turning. It's his prayer of confession, his prayer of repentance. It's his response to his Nathan experience. And I want to look at this morning and just look at, at three gifts that David discovered when he turned to God. Three gifts that his repentance brought to him. Three gifts that, that when we choose to turn, three gifts that we can experience in our life as well. The first gift that repentance brought David was unconditional love. He begins this way. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. David's sin has been uncovered. David's sin has been unwrapped. He's standing there and he doesn't look very good. A Nathan experience sometimes doesn't leave us looking very good. But a marvelous thing happened. 
when David was exposed to the light, then God's love began to flood through his life and fill every dark recess that he had. A lot of times we picture confession like this. You know, here's God with his arms crossed and he's waiting for us to to give a good confession. And uh, kind of stern. And, And if we do give a good confession, then maybe he'll come over and put his arms around us and say, that's okay, I forgive you, don't worry about it. It's like God's over here and we're going, please, I need something. But I think that's the wrong picture of confession. I think a more accurate picture is found in Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son. You remember the story? The young son, he's rebellious. He takes his dad's money, spends it. He just wastes it all. Then he finds himself starving with his pigs. He can't even eat the pig food. I mean, it's bad. He has his Nathan experience. He realizes, this is stupid. This is dumb. I need to go home. I need to tell my dad I've confessed. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. And so the prodigal son gets up and he starts home. But as Jesus tells the story, he tells it this way. As the son was returning, his father saw him while he was still a good distance away. And that father ran down the road to meet his son. Before his son got any words of confession out, that dad wrapped his arms around his son. He said, I love you. I've missed you so much. I'm so glad that you're home. And he hugged him and they jumped up and down and they cried together. And, and it was in the midst of this loving embrace that the son finally could say, Dad, I've made some mistakes and I'm sorry. It wasn't a, a question of the son doing that and then the father loving him. That son was doing it in the midst of the loving arms of his father. And when we come and when we turn, what we find is that we're not confessing to earn God's love. We're confessing because we are immersed in God's love. And His arms are wrapped around us. He's saying, I missed you. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Unconditional love. We don't have to be afraid. I think so many times we're afraid to turn to God. Because we're worried. If He really knows what we look like, He's not going to love us, but He does love us. We're worried. We hide. Adam and Eve, that's the first thing they did when they sinned was they hid. But we don't have to hide. We don't have to stuff our sin. No matter what we've done, no matter where we've been or, 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 or how bad we think we are, God loves us. It's an unfailing love and that will never change. First gift is an unfailing, unconditional love. A love that allowed him to be open and honest before God and just pour his sins out before the Lord. He didn't have to hide. The second gift that repentance brought to David was a cleansing forgiveness. In verse 7 he writes, Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. David looks at his life and he sees that it is stained with sin. And he wants to clean it up and he wants to, to deal with it. So he says, Lord, wash me. Wash me as white as snow. The only problem was in David's day, that really wasn't possible. In the Old Covenant, you could make a sacrifice and your sin would be covered, covered from the eyes of God. So, so that was the way they took care of it. But it was never completely removed. There was a forgiveness of sorts, but that sin was never completely dealt with. If you look at Hebrews 10.11, 
describes the Old Covenant. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Those priests, they continue to stand. They never can sit down because they're always offering sacrifices to cover people's sins because they can never take the sin away. (coughs) But here's the good news for us. That passage continues. But when Jesus offered one sacrifice for sins, that's His precious blood, one sacrifice for sins for all time, He sat down at the right hand of His Father. The reason He could sit down was His blood had finished it. It was done. Now there was a way to remove the sin. And by faith, we can enter into that. And we can have our sins cleansed. And we can be made clean and whole. No matter what we've done, the blood of Christ washes us as white as snow. If you stay up real late at night, like I do, you see these infomercials, 30 minutes, and there's one out for Stainerator. And they take this white carpet sample, lovely white carpet sample, and they put on like blueberry juice, and they put on ink, and they put on blood, and they put on you know your worst nightmare as far as staining your carpet. Oh, it looks like the carpet is ruined. What shall we do? Oh, the miracle stainerator. Bring out that stainerator, squirt it on those stains, a couple of wipes, and hey, the stain is gone. And then they flip the carpet over. It's gone all the way through the back. Unbelievable. Buy that stainerator right now, folks. Let's say you take a person. So you take a person and you put on a little sexual sin. And you cover them with a little murder. You cover them with a little disobedience. You cover them with the worst sins that you can think of. And they're standing before you as a person and it looks like their life is ruined. There's no hope. And then in walks Jesus by His sacrifice, by His precious blood, that person is washed whiter than snow. That person receives a brand new start. That sin has never existed. The Lord allows him a second chance to start over again, fresh and clean and beautiful. That's the wonder, that's the miracle. The cleansing forgiveness that we can only find in Jesus Christ doesn't matter where you've been. doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter how bad you think your sins are. The blood of Jesus Christ will wash you as white as snow. Listen to the words of God. As far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. In Jeremiah 31, 34, God says, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. It's done. It's completed. It's finalized. 1 John 1, 9. What a great promise. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the miracle of the blood of Christ. It cleans us. The sin is gone. Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The debt has been paid. The penalty has been paid. The stains have been removed. And Jesus Christ has done it for us. 
minimizing our sin, denying our sin, hiding our sin is not going to do a thing to take away the stain of the guilt. But running to the feet of Jesus and saying, Wash me, Lord. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Then we receive His cleansing forgiveness. Third gift that repentance brought to David was a change of heart. A change of heart. David says in verse 10, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Create in me a pure heart. The word create here is the same one that's used in Genesis. It means to, take, uh, to create something from nothing. David isn't just saying, take my old sinful heart and give me a spiritual overhaul, Lord. David is saying, Lord, I want something supernatural here. I want a brand new heart. I want your heart placed within me. I want a heart that wants to follow you. I want a heart that's going to be in tune with your heart. I want a heart that knows the freshness and the life and the joy of following a right spirit. Create in me a new heart, a pure heart, Lord. In verses 16 and 17, he also adds, You do not delight in sacrifices, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. A broken heart. A broken, repentant heart. A heart that is open to God's leading. It doesn't sound like a very pleasant experience. And yet what the Lord is teaching me is that a broken heart can lead to a great amount of freedom and joy. In our prayer time a couple of weeks ago, my wife Jim Nell and I were asking God to show us any... I kind of stumbled over my wife's name there. Uh, it's not that I don't know her, but... <laughs> I've always called her Jan, and I know she likes to be called Janelle, so I got caught in a Jan and Janelle there. So it's Janelle. Happy Valentine's Day, dear, wherever you are with the children. <coughs> but in our prayer time, we were, we were doing a spiritual inventory. We were saying, Lord, just light up our lives. Show us if there's anything that's burdening us, if there's anything that's, that's robbing us of our joy. Lord, show that to us. And he did. Early in 1992, it was a very difficult time for us. Uh, there were some misunderstandings. Some, some things were said about... Uh, my wife and I and our motives were doing some things that were really not very accurate, not very true. And because of that, a number of our friends that we thought were friends just kind of turned away. And we felt shunned. We felt all alone. We felt terribly misunderstood. And there was nothing that we could do about it because of, of the situation. Now, obviously, at the end of 1992, things got much better because we were able to have a part in starting Woodland Hills and God has given us so many new friends. That's just great. But as we prayed, the Holy Spirit lit up the area of our life that we had hidden on and hung on to and, and stuffed for almost a year. And God clearly said to us, you still have some bitterness. You still have some anger that haven't been dealt with. And it's suffocating you spiritually. It's weighing you down. We saw this huge weight on our shoulders. And to be honest, I kind of knew I was hanging on to it. I don't know if you're ever like that, but one person in particular had done a lot of harm to our family, and I was upset. And I was kind of savoring that bitterness. I was kind of savoring that anger. It felt good to be angry at that 
person. And sometimes angry is good in the healing process. But God was telling us it's time to deal with that. And as we prayed together, God's Spirit broke my heart. My hard heart, my proud heart, my heart that wanted to hang on to that God's Spirit entered in and that my heart was broken. And Jan and I just sat there and cried and cried and cried. We cried for the pain that we'd experienced. We cried for the pain that that sin had had in our lives. And we were broken before the Lord. And God specifically told us how we needed to deal with it, and it was to go to that particular person and ask for forgiveness for anything that we had caused them pain, for our bitterness, for our anger. And so we went. We didn't want to. We wanted to send a postcard, but the Lord said go. And I'll tell you, as Jan and I drove home that oh, there we go. As Janelle and I drove home that day, it was such a sweet feeling to be broken. The joy of the Lord was just able to flood into our lives. It felt like this huge weight had been lifted off of our shoulders. A wound that had been open for a year was beginning to heal, and it was a great experience for us. And the joy of the Lord filled our hearts and filled our car, filled our lives. And we know that because the joy of the Lord makes you hungry. And we both said, gee, are you hungry? Yeah, I'm hungry. And so we were really hungry. So we really knew that God had been there. And I never would have guessed that being broken before the Lord could have been such a wonderful experience. But it was. A broken heart open to God's Spirit can lead to some great healing and some great joy. The prayer of repentance, it's not a one-time thing. It's kind of a spiritual lifestyle. We'll always be fighting our old nature. We're always prone to wander, fighting our flesh, and, and, and it's, it's tough. And so it's a process of constantly asking, Lord, show me. Show me where my sin is so I can deal with it. And as we deal with that sin, it just lifts that bond, that, that burden from us. And it allows us to have a close, intimate relationship with God. We want to be really open and honest with this church. And I hope we can be open and honest about the area of sin. Nobody's perfect. If you are, I'd love to talk to you. We're all sinners. We're all sinners that have been saved by the grace of God. Let's not feel the need to hide, the need to to shy away from each other and from God. Let's just be open and honest, turning to Him and finding love and forgiveness and joy. Let's rejoice in His grace. Let's pray. Father, there are so many situations that are here. And the last thing that I want to do, Lord, is to make a situation worse for someone who's suffering with false guilt and false shame. But Lord, I also know that that there's real guilt and there's real sin that we need to deal with. Lord, I pray that you'll give us your truth so we can discern which is which. Lord, we, now we ask that your Spirit would come, that your Spirit would illuminate our lives. Lord, show us if there's any wicked way in us. Show us what we need to deal with. It's your love, it's your forgiveness that can cleanse us from our sin. 
Lord, we thank you for your precious blood that was shed for us. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We rejoice in that, Lord. We love you so much. This morning we're going to celebrate communion. It's a very appropriate time for us to look at our lives. If there's any business that we need to do with the Lord, this is the time to do it. So as we sing this morning, I would just encourage you to just be open, to be broken before the Lord, to just say, Lord, here I am. I'm sick of hiding. I'm sick of stuffing. I'm sick of pretending. I want to deal with my sin. And just let the Lord speak to you. I'm going to ask the prayer counselors if they would come forward right now. And even as we're, we're singing and worshiping the Lord, preparing for communion, if you want to come forward and pray with someone, we'll be here to pray with you. And that would just be a privilege. So let's just be open before the Lord as we worship Him this morning.